It's Robbie here and welcome to the Coach's Journey podcast, episode seven. And the guest in this episode is Kristin Kaczynski. Uh, Kristin is a coach, a consultant and a founder. She works to empower her clients to achieve the impossible, lead fearlessly, inspire others and manifest their dreams. Midway through a career as a successful executive in Hollywood working for Paramount, Kristen sat down slightly reluctantly uh, with a woman on the recommendation of a friend. But that woman turned out to be Mona Miller, the late coach, author and teacher who Kristen worked with over the next 12 years, as her career and all her relationships across her life were transformed. As part of that, she fulfilled a uh, a, a dream she'd had for many, many years to work with women in Africa, founding the Samburu Project, which was a non-profit organization, is a non-profit organization, which has to date brought clean drinking water to over 100,000 people in Africa. Then, in 2016, after leaving the Samburu Project, she set off to do the work that she had learned from Mona, training as a coach and then developing a business through, among many other things, her courage and her commitment to doing her own deep work. Kristen and I get into some cover some great ground in this episode. She talks about how that, those first two hours with Mona, where Mona saw all Kristen's messiness truly in the most extraordinarily loving way, how that transformed Kristen. We talk about how Kristen, because of her experience with the Samburu Project, came to believe that we live in a world where many of us literally can live our dreams. But we also talk about why so many are afraid to even speak about their dreams, let alone follow them. We talk about how visiting her father after his terminal cancer diagnosis gave her the permission to leave behind her dream, the Samburu project that she'd had since she was young, much younger, and strike out on a new path, and, and many other things, including the writing practice she uses to deal with the pain of getting no's, uh, plus in the final part of the call, Kristen and I get into detail exploring uh, together some of the questions about how to structure coaching engagements, the optimal length for them, whether to offer one-on-one -on -one conversations to potential clients, and all kinds of things like that. I think my favorite things about this episode, I mean, there's a couple of them, but, but one of them is I think Kristen tells the story beautifully here about the power of coaching as a client. Um, you know, all the work she did with Mona and with her, her other coaches and the impact that has had on her in so many different ways. She tells that story beautifully, vulnerably, very clearly and very touchingly. And so, you know, I really hope you value that as much as I did. Um, and you can feel that in the way she speaks as well as hear it in the stories she tells. Uh, before we dive in, um, just to say a couple of things, I'm still in the enrollment for the Coach's Journey group program, which is where this podcast originally got its name. Uh, if you're curious about making 2020 the year that you take your coaching business to a new level, uh, there's a few chances to experience some group coaching with me. Um, you can book for them at thecoachesjourney.com um, and they run until the middle of February uh, 2020. Um, also, there's no big marketing budget behind The Coach's Journey, but there's lots of people, it's really lovely, have written to me to say thank you for, for creating it. And, and I hope that they'll, they and you will all get as much from this episode as you have from previous ones. There's no marketing budget behind this. So look, if, if it means a lot to you, if it's, if it's affected you or helped you in some way, please share it with somebody else. Maybe leave a review or click a follow or a five-star rating or, or, or any other rating, of course, uh, <laughs> that you want to click. Um, because that's the sort of thing that will help more this, this, this episode and the others reach more people. Um, oh, the last thing to say before we dive in is, uh, as part of Christian's uh, character, there are a few swear words across this episode. So if you, there have been in other episodes, but 
you know, there's quite a few F words scattered throughout this interview. So if that's the kind of thing that you don't like, uh, this is the wrong episode for you. Uh, But it's a wonderful episode. I really enjoyed uh, having this conversation with Kristen, who is a wonderful woman. And I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I did having it. So uh, without any further ado, um, let me introduce Kristen Kaczynski. Well, Kristen, welcome to the Coach's Journey podcast. Thanks, Robbie. I am so happy to be here and to be with you. Yeah, we were just saying off the call, we spent quite a lot of time together, but I don't think we've spoken for about 18 months. So it's fun to be in this space with you. And I'm really curious to see what what you're up to and to get into a conversation about your work and life and coaching. I'm excited to tell you about whatever you want to know. Yeah. Well, let's start. Like, <laughs> have at it. Go on. What you, have at it? Cool. Have at so, it. Uh, so, yeah, one of the ways that I've been starting some of these calls is to go to when, do you remember when you first heard about coaching, about this thing that we do? Well, it's interesting because I actually worked with a coach starting in 1999, 2000, something like that. Um, And that was really before people were calling themselves coaches. And I remember I was in Florida with my brother and there was a woman there, a friend of his wife was there. And she was talking about becoming a, uh, being a life coach, becoming a life coach. And I was like, oh. Hate that. <laughs> what did hate you hate? I've never actually. I've grown to actually be okay with that. The word, the term, life coach. But for a long time, it really was like, ooh, it felt something about it felt. I don't know why. Just, ugh, there's something about it that has rubbed me wrong. And now I'm starting to embrace it. But when she said that, I was like, ah, life coach. It just feels a little weak for what it is. I think it's really incredibly powerful work. And for some reason, the word life coach just feels like it doesn't do what we do justice. So I generally don't refer to myself as a life coach, although a lot of people choose to refer to me as that. Yeah, that's interesting. I get a similar thing. You're a life coach, right? People will say to me, and I will say, exactly. "Well, well." In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, "Well, I've never described myself as a life coach to anyone, except when I've said I work as a coach, explain what it is, and they go, oh, a life coach.'" And then I kind of yeah. shrug and accept it. But yeah, I get called it a lot as well. People who aren't <laughs> coaches seem to really like that term, and maybe it doesn't bother them as much. I mean, I think there was a time where it was kind of a woo-woo weird thing, and I, I think the world is really starting to embrace this idea of coaching feels like it's par- becoming part of the vernacular on, on some level, but it wasn't before. Yeah. And like I said, in 1999, when I started working with Mona, who was my coach for 12 years, she did not call herself a coach. We didn't have words to describe her. We didn't know what to call her. So how did you find her and how did you end up doing work with her? So uh, in 1999, I went on a yoga retreat to Maui. And when I was there, I met a friend of mine, Marty, and she was like, you have to, you have to meet Mona. Like Mona's going to change your life. And Marty Marty had, it was a pretty deep retreat and we had some pretty deep conversations. And she's like, I think that she could really support you and some stuff that you've gone through and that you're 
currently working through and what Mona did was a really, it was hard to articulate. And so I was like, ah, maybe. And I really loved Marty and I thought she was an amazing person. Like, well, if this woman thinks that I should meet this other person, like maybe I should consider it. And so I called Mona when I got back and she had like a wait list. (laughs) Every coach's dream. Mm -hmm. She had a wait list and she actually saw a client on the hour, every hour, every day for like eight to nine hours a day. And it was a pretty, it's very different than the way many of us do coaching now. I don't know how she did it. I mean, insane. So I called and like there was a wait list and then suddenly they had some t- a slot for me like to come in and see her and you had to see her for two hours instead of one. It was a hundred dollars an hour. So it was, God, that felt like a lot of money back in, to me back in 1999. Like, oh. $200. I don't want to do it. And then I, I decided to make this $200 commitment and go to see Mona. And it literally was two hours that absolutely completely changed my life. Why? Like, you know how Rich Lippin often talks about like messing up people's thinking. <laughs> it was like that on freaking steroids. Like, I had no fucking idea. Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Please do. I had no idea (laughs) how fucked up I was. And in two hours, and no, no, that's not true. I knew that I was fucked up. But I didn't believe, I don't think until that point, that anybody could understand my fucked up goodness until the two hours that I spent with Mona. And I was like, hella fucking Luya. Like somebody has actually seen me and like for who I really truly am. And in the most extraordinarily loving way possible, like I felt completely understood and completely accepted in like all of my messiness. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And do you remember like after that conversation, what the impact for you was in, in day-to-day life? Like what changed? Well, I took a journey with Mona for 12 years. So yeah. <laughs> it was a long journey. And the only reason the journey ended was that she died. Yeah. So what she had me do in that, that, that first two hours with her was that she had me write basically three fuck you letters. Yeah. Tell, tell, for people who don't know what that is, tell, tell us what a fuck you letter is. Oh, it's like, you know, dear mom, fuck you. (laughs) And then at that time I was like, you know, 30 or something. And it was like 30, uh, 30 years of like things that I was upset about her. And it, it, and it actually may not have been a fuck you. It might've been dear mom. When I look at you, I see when I look at you, I feel that's another version of the fuck you for people who can't, some people can't immediately get in touch with their anger. Um, I'm very good at it now. <laughs> I'm an expert. Uh, in fact, October was angry October. I went to angry October and did anger work every day. So basically it was the fuck you to mom, fuck you to dad, and then the fuck you to myself. And the fuck you to myself was really the most revealing for me. I couldn't believe how much I hated myself. And like to hold that hatred in, I mean, look, I just get tears in my eyes just thinking about it, like spending so much energy 
holding in that hatred that I had for myself and have absolutely having nowhere to express that or knowing how to express it. And then being in a space where like someone was like, I could share that with somebody and they love me more because of it instead of less. It's just so crazy to me because I just had no idea. I didn't know any idea. So I think my whole, I mean, as I said, initially, like that two hours changed my life. Yeah. What a, what a way to start, right? She's no, like, it's, no it's messing around. around. It's the do not fuck around club. <laughs> like if you went to Mo and I was like, we don't fuck around. Like we just fucking go to it. And like, here it is. Um, sometimes I wish that I could always be as bold as she was because she was just so bold. She had zero attachment to hurting my feelings and uh, did not hold back at all. And what do you think if it what you know she wasn't held back by those things? What what guided her then? How did she choose? It, choose maybe the wrong language, but ha- where did that come from? That stuff. I think her her work was like ninety nine point nine percent intuition. Yeah. I mean, she told me things about myself that day that I had never told anybody, and I didn't tell her. Yeah. And I was like, what? Really? How do you know this? And I was like, wow. Right. So she used so like she used her intuition like so much in the in the coaching conversation. It was so, so masterful and that she was that plugged in and really sitting in that place of understanding rather than judgment. Yeah. Yeah. And so you work with her for 12 years and it's like, no wonder, right? After you've had that conversation and I imagine many more like it. Oh. Um, wow. I'm just, yeah. And then I guess I'm curious. So, so you were doing the work with her and then you heard about the idea of coaching, but presumably at this time, well, you weren't working as a coach. So no. at what was, point? I was an executive at Paramount. Right. Right. And so at what point, then later on as either you know and and how did the idea of i don't know whether it was doing some training or working as a coach yourself come about oh it was a long journey yeah. <laughs> i mean i took my own self development personal development journey and it started before i met mona i was heavy into yoga and meditation and i was doing some other things i had done some workshops i was working with actors at the time and I had a boss who was teaching this really amazing course called the mastery of self-expression. So I had done that. Actually, I think that course probably launched my self-development work. I was always very curious about like who I was and what I was supposed to be doing on the planet, but I was also extremely disconnected. You know, I was very much in my addict energy, like drank a lot. I mean, drank a lot for many, many years. Like I come from a background of abuse, um, sexual abuse and, um, just an abusive uh, upbringing in general, like a lot of alcoholism. And, and so I, my coping mechanism starting as a young, like teen, preteen was to drink. And I, and I lived in a community that was very much about that. So I spent most of my teens and my twenties, like really shutting down, terribly shutting down. Like just, 
I mean, on the outside was like totally presenting, like I had my shit together, but on the inside just fucked up, like dark and fucked up. Uh, and th that's the hardest part is like, I could present like this and be like, Hey, I'm like, you know, and I was so fucked up on the inside. So kind of just to go back for a minute. Like one of the reasons I started this self-development journey was when I was 21, I had a, like a full blown panic attack that sent me to the hospital. Cause I thought I was having a heart attack. I was in college and I like, completely had this crazy panic attack and then it led to like many years of suffering terribly from panic disorder really like a very severe case of it and still having panic disorder but like presenting like i was a normal human being it was mostly just a war between my ears <laughs> but i was in so many ways really paralyzed by it and so that's when i started the self-development journey did you know that was why you were starting it or, or was it just a, you know, it, once you started, it became about that? Well, I started, I mean, I started, like went to a psychiatrist cause I was like, I'm out of, like I'm losing my mind because I'm having this, I'm, I'm either having a panic attack or I'm uh, fearing one to come on. Like I was agoraphobic on some level. So, uh, I, I went to a psychiatrist who I didn't, couldn't get a lot. Like I couldn't, we didn't have the same values. So it was hard for me to like really completely relate to him, but he did, he practiced hypnosis and he would hypnotize me. Every, I, we would never talk. I would just go to his office and he'd hypnotize me for like six months. And that kind of started it and it kept that at bay. And I was very good at hypnosis. I was highly suggestible. So I had that ability to drop in really deep fast, which helps in the, his work. <laughs> a lot <laughs> so anyway that kind of led to some other things and then I I started yoga and meditation and doing these other things like the mastery of self-expression that I told you about and then uh, finally met Mona which really was a major turning point and because she challenged me like nobody I think this is the thing it's like even as coaches like people are so like want to make everything nice for everybody and are so unwilling to challenge people in a way that's really edgy and might make them not like you. I think I even am challenged with that as a coach oftentimes. I think the extraordinary thing about Mona was she did not give a fuck what you thought about her. I mean, maybe she did and she had to process it, but I think she was really good at like really not personalizing. And so she could come at coaching in such a powerful way. So what happened was I did that work with her. And I mean, it was like up to, I mean, I, I changed, I, my entire life changed. Like I uh, ended up, you know, getting promoted a number of times at work. I was at Paramount at the time. I ultimately remembered my, like, one of my life's purposes and left Paramount to pursue that. I you know, had a child in a very like unplanned sort of way, which was hugely confronting. And she walked me through that. She walked me through starting my company. She, wa she walked me through business partnerships. Like what we did, the work was so expensive. It changed all of my relationships with everybody in my family. I mean, I'm, I'm a different human being because of it, for sure. Like it absolutely changed my life. So I was doing all of that and I was busy doing that. 
And so when I was with Mona doing that work, I wasn't thinking about coaching. I was thinking about doing something that was more alternative. I thought, wow, that'd be cool to be able to like sit around and talk to people all day long. Like uh, when I was working 16 hour days at Paramount, like it seems like, wow, that would be really cool. But I didn't think that that was for me. I didn't think that I, and it's hard when you work with someone that's so gifted. If you at all want to compare yourself with them, you're like, I could never fucking do what she does ever. So <clears throat> what happened was I ended up, I started a nonprofit organization. Uh, I went, I went to Africa because of the work I did with Mona. I remembered that I had this vision as a little girl that I wanted to work with African women. And so, and I had actually pursued that through a lot of my younger life and it just didn't come to fruition. Like I used to tell my mom, I'm not going to college. I'm going to go to Africa. And she's like, yeah, right. Well, I graduated from high school in 1987. There was no internet. So I couldn't for the life of me, I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the United States. I could for the life of me figure out how to get to Africa. Like there was no, just, there was no, there was, I couldn't figure it out. So I was like, I guess I'll go to college. And then I went to Penn state and then I couldn't, I started uh, working with, I did a, some sort of independent study where I was tutoring ESL students. Like I was doing work to prepare my resume to go to the Peace Corps. Cause I was like, the Peace Corps can take me to Africa for sure. And then I ended up doing a teaching program called Teach for America and I got sidetracked. And then I moved to LA and I got into the entertainment business and so on and so forth. But I, and then I forgot, like I absolutely forgot what I was supposed to do. And though I had gotten super involved in women's empowerment work, I got, uh, you know, I traveled a ton. I was, tra whenever I had a holiday, I was traveling somewhere in the developing world. So I, I, I was doing these things and then all of a sudden I woke up to like, oh, my land, I was supposed to go to Africa. I, I, I have this thing, like I had this vision. And so in 2005, thanks to the work that I did with Mona, I was able to, see, I, I realized what I wanted to do and I took the, like I had the balls, so to speak. I don't have any balls, but if I had balls, I got them. Maybe I do have some balls. And there's, they're energetic balls. So, <laughs> you definitely do have, I have energetic balls. balls. Ah, so funny. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, a, I don't know, I'm thinking like hermaphrodite or something, but it's energetically. Like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I am. I can do my, I, I'm, I'm constantly working to balance my masculine and my feminine energies. So. Yeah. So anyway, <clears throat> I quit my job at Paramount. It's a long freaking story, which I want to be in. Fascinating. And uh, went to Africa. And I literally actually did it all on the same day. Like I left my 10 year career and went to Africa on the same day. And when I got like three days in, I was in a village in a hut with like 35 women. And I was like, holy shit, this is the vision that I saw as a little girl. And I knew in the moment that that's where I was, that where 30 years before, like I was there. So this is, that's what this work provided me. It provided me this like, I had a fucking dream and I saw, I, I, it, like it, I got to connect the dots with the dream and I feel like, holy shit. Remember one time after, so anyway, what that happened, what that did was, and I'm talking too much to tell me to shut up, but, uh, or, or pull back the reins. So what happened was I, okay. So I ended up, I spent three months traveling in Africa and then I went to Europe and then I came back to the U S and I incorporated a nonprofit organization with the focus of providing clean drinking water as a foundation to development. Because when I met with women over months in Kenya, I realized if they didn't have clean water, there was no conversation about empowerment. And so that, 
you know, it wasn't as sexy as I thought like female genital mutilation, that conversation was, but I was like, I guess we're doing water. And I didn't know anything about the water issue at the time. So anyway, cut to like, I started this organization and I can tell you more about that or not. But what happened was I was sitting with my dad one day. I'll never forget where I was. It was called, uh, it was on Main Street in Santa Monica. It's not there anymore. It was called World Cafe. It was owned by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Anyway, so I was sitting there and I was like, dad, like how awesome is this? This might be like a year or two into the summer project which was the organization that I started. I was like, dad, how cool is this? I'm living my dream. Like I had a dream and now I'm living the dream. And by the way, it was hard as that. Living the dream can be really hard. <laughs> yeah. Living the dream is not easy. You just get to have like the, you get to wear the badge of like, I'm living my dream. Like this is my vision and now I'm doing it. Doesn't mean that it's easy. But I was like, how cool is that? And like, we live in this world in the United States where you could do whatever you want. Like, you know, I mean, Certain people have certain obstacles that they have to be challenged with. But at the end of the day, like the world is your oyster if you want to make it happen. And we hear these stories all the time. And I'm like, but the crazy thing is people are not following their dreams. Mm. People are not, people are so afraid to even speak into what their dream is. Like they're not living their dream. But do, do you think, because obviously the work with Mona had a massive impact on you and it sounds like if it wasn't for that, you wouldn't have been living yours or you might not have, or it would have been different. Oh, maybe. I mean, who knows, right? Like, it could have been like another someone else. I could have, who knows? Or I could have been living mildly miserable for my entire life. That's possible. And I guess what I'm asking is, what do you think is, I don't know if you've seen this with clients or or whether it's just your story or, or the world at large, what do you think the difference is between, yeah, why is it that some people aren't trying, uh, even trying to live their dreams? I think most people don't even know that it's a possibility. Mm. Even in America, despite the American dream. It's for somebody else. Yeah, it's for someone else. Like people lack the empowerment to realize how magical and master manifesto they are. Like we have that. But people don't, they don't know it. They don't believe it. And I think one of the reasons is, is that we live in a world where it's so external, right? Everything comes from the outside. It doesn't. We're, we're, we're uh, socialized to believe that everything's outside in, right? From the way that we're treated in our families, the way that we're treated in schools, that, you know, the, that empowerment piece where it's like, yeah, actually we're creating with, God or the universe or whatever you want, like all day long. But people don't know that. Like, because we live in a world that the way things are structured is that, and, and our religious systems, like, they don't want people to believe that we're doing that, that we have that ability. You know, it's like, I mean, this is crazy, but it's what just occurred to me. It's like why the witches were killed in Salem, right? It's like, because we have, we all as human beings, like no one's more special than any other person. Like we all have these abilities, but the way that our governments and schools and religions have worked with people, it's to make them not believe, to disbelieve in their abilities. And so if we disbelieve in our abilities, then, you know, that's how you keep the man down, so to speak, or whatever that is. I think that's part of it. I think that's changing drastically i think we're in a you know we're in a new this is the 2000s it's like there's a 
a shift in consciousness for sure that's happening. But then we see this polarity because you see the, the, the two sides, right? It's going to come to like a happy medium somewhere. So I think people just don't even know it because of the way you've been socialized and it's generational. So it's not just like, oh, you've been socialized this way. It's like you're carrying the DNA of all of your people, right? All of your ancestors. And it's been like this for a really long time, unless you were like the landlord and then you got the whole thing and then everyone else was like beneath you, right? I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm just making this shit up right now, but <laughs> I, mean, I believe it. I mean, I believe that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it is a lot to do with that, you know? Um, and I think it happens again and again, right? You can realize what's possible in a few uh, in different levels. I feel like in the last year or two, I've gone to a, a new one, a new level. It's like I kind of knew that I could create some kind of change in my life, but that still doesn't mean that I believe I could do what, let's say, Mona, if my equivalence of Mona could do, um, because they are them. Right. And then at some point yeah. you, you start to shift to, for me, it's a more of a shift of, oh wait, but I can just, yeah, I'm not going to be Mona, but that's fine. Right. I can right. do something to do with Robbie. It'll be like that. But, but there's no reason that I have to tell a story that it can't be whatever. Well, cause you Robbie have whatever the gift and Mona was an extraordinarily gifted human for sure. But we all have those extraordinary gifts. We yeah. all have. Yeah. And I can't, as, as Mona's student, I can't hold myself up to her and say like, God, I just can't. I mean, I can hold it to like a, well, what would Mona do in this situation? Because sometimes we need that. And then it's like, and, and, and maybe it's funny because we're having this conversation. I love this because like, I think I've been thinking about this for a while about Mona and how fearless she was. And it's like, how do I get to be more fearless? How can I be more fearless in my coaching? You know, she was really great because she was fucking fearless. And uh, that's a goal for me, for sure. Yeah, what, I'm never going to be like her. her. I'm different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Forget about Jesus. What would Mona do? Exactly. By the way, she's like giggling right now that we're even having a fucking conversation. Yeah, and, I, and I think Jesus would be cool with that as well. I mean, he was probably a good Jesus coach. would be totally cool with but, that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I think he would, he would understand. <laughs> but so, Kristen, then... So you, you started Samburu Project, which I mean, tens of thousands of people got clean water. Yeah, that's right, isn't it? Yeah. Well, to date, it's over 100,000 people. Wow. Because I left the organization in 2016, but the organization has continued without me. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. What a thing. What a legacy. You don't have to do anything else. You've already I would say, like, I'm the founder. I always get to, I don't have to do anything, and I'm still the founder. <laughs> When I realized that, when I was like fixing it, but I was like updating my LinkedIn, I'm like, what do I put here? Like I have founder because I was founder and executive director for a long time and it was on one line. And then I was no longer the executive director. So that got pushed down, but I'm like, I'm the founder in perpetuity. Yeah. Like I'm always the founder of the organization. So I get on some level to take, and I don't mean that in a go up way. It's just a, it tickles me kind of. Cause it's like, I'm always, it doesn't matter. I'm the founder of this organization would not exist without me. Like, how cool is that? Nothing's ever going to change that. No, I get to be, I get, it's on my LinkedIn, like pre to present. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Still the founder. So, so I why? I don't really do with the organization anymore, which is great too, as a founder. Uh, yeah. Why, founder. <laughs> what happened? Why did you draw that chapter to a close? So it's, and it's interesting because today a memory came up in Facebook, uh, for me, um, which is related to this in that 
in 2015, in May, my father died. But just before he died, about a month, a few weeks before he died, I got to visit him. And, uh, and I knew he had just gotten a diagnosis, a, a stage four lung cancer diagnosis, and that was like, there's nothing we can do. And he had a very short time to live. And so I spent a few days with him. And I, it occurred to me that he didn't get to do anything else in his life. Like, that was it. Like, like he was done. I mean, he got to do whatever he was going to do before he died. But any big, huge dreams that he had or hopes or whatever, like, for this lifetime, it was over. Like, he, it was, com- he was going to be complete. And I was like, holy shit, like, a Semper Project was absolutely a dream of mine, but I'm complete. Like, I'm done with this, but I have other things I want to pursue. Like, I have other visions and other dreams. Like, for as many challenges as we have, we have purposes. And so I was like, because I kind of thought in my head, like, oh, I have to do this for the rest of my life because I found, I like am the lucky one that found, like, I'm doing what I said that I was going to do. But my truth is, probably about year seven, I was kind of like, I'm, I don't want to do this anymore. So I was like, I was through almost three or two plus years in to like, I, this is, it, it's fundraising's hard. Like it's relentless. It's, you know, logistics in Africa, challenging. I had a young child as a single mom, like this whole time almost. My son was born in 2008. I had started the organization in 2005. So you know, a lot of this time of the growth of the organization, I was like single parenting. And I was like, God, like this, it just felt like I was pushing a boulder up the hill all the time. And I was like, how much can one human take? And, and there was a lot of amazingness to it too, right? That like, we did what I said. I set out to do something and I did it. I mean, the initial goal of the Sun Project was to drill 25 wells, period. And then I was going to like quit and go back to the entertainment business or something. And I didn't know what I was going to do, but I thought maybe. And we totally surpassed that. By the way, it took us like four years longer to get to our initial three years or something forever but to get to the initial goal that I thought it was going to. Because <laughs> it all cost a lot more money than I thought it was supposed to based on my initial research. So, but anyway, so my, back to it. It was my dad dying that was like, wow, like I'm, I, I, like I, his dying gave me permission to step away. It was such a, it was actually the the biggest gift in his, in his dying. It actually had a memory that came up today on Facebook that I was saying, there was a picture of my father and my son when my son was about a year and a half old and myself. Um, and it was a picture in the, we were in Ohio. I was doing fundraising and uh, there was a picture with the fall leaves and it's so beautiful. And I had put it up like four years ago on his six month anniversary of his death. And it came up today, and I'll tell you something. Ooh, did I get a good cry on that one today? I, you know, still my heart is still like oof, broken over losing my father. But mm. what I got in his death was like unbelievable. I say now that he's my business partner because I always mm. go to him for any business decisions. <laughs> like when I did the Rich Litvin Salon and spent all that money, I was like, Dad, tell me, give me a sign. And literally, I said I want it by noon today. It was like six a.m. and I had it by like ten forty-five. What was the sign? I was in a spinning class and like the guy, the instructor started like channeling my father. <sighs> like he was talking just like my father and there's a lot of fucks in it and his language. 
And then I was like, oh my God, you know, it's my dad talking. I could tell it was him. And it was kind of like, fuck it, you know, why not? Like it was, and I was like, oh my lands, it's really this. And I was in my head. And then I was like, okay, I got that, but I need one more thing. Like you need to confirm that that's a confirmation. <laughs> and then the guy started talking about the 405. And my dad was like crazy about cars and the freeways. And I'd had another four or five experience prior to that with my dad after he passed, which is another long story. But I was like, oh my God, that's it. Like he gave me the sign. I got two signs within like <laughs> two signs. So anyway, my dad's my business partner. I, he gave me the permission. And I told my father before he died. So I, I was flying back home and, uh, you know, kind of all came together for me. I was like, holy shit, I have to leave some project. Like, I don't have a plan, but I got to do it. Cause like this chapter is closing for me. And so I called my dad it was my first phone call. I got back to LA and I was like, I called him and I was like, dad, I want you to know. And he was still lucid. Like I could have this conversation with him. I was like, I'm leaving the Sambaru project. And he was like, like my dad was very thoughtful. He always took long pauses, took a really long pause. He's like, Kristen, I am so proud of you. You have done the impossible. And I was like, still crying about it. Yeah. And it's all true. And the crazy fucking thing, Robbie, is that he was my biggest fucking naysayer. Of <laughs> he is like, what the fuck are you doing? Are you fucking kidding me? Like, are you serious? Why would you do this? Why would you start a nonprofit organization? This is the craziest thing in the world. And then it's like, I had that conversation. So what more do you need? What do you need? So I then gave my notice and that was... I immediately gave my notice and then I went back and we had an event. That's why I came back to LA when he was dying and we had a walk for water. I gave my notice. I met with my, after the walk, I met my board chair. I gave my notice. I gave like a long time, like eight months or something. And, uh, and then I went back to Florida where my dad was and I spent the last two weeks with him before he passed. And Another story for another day, but I got to cross over with them, which is pretty extraordinary. So anyway, mm. so that's then when the, so then I, oh, he asked me a question. <laughs> yeah. Because I got more, I can, I can talk all day, Robbie. It's great, It's so great. It's so great. But it's thanks, but thank you. Let, let's slow it now that you've, we've broken it. Let's slow it down and just say, thanks for sharing those stories already. They're powerful stories. And Welcome. What a beautiful! I've remembered that as you were talking about your dad. I remembered that thing that, that you told told me before about him being the business partner, and I've thought I have thought about that since you first said it because it's such a beautiful way to think about things. Or the way that you know, so many people in different ways, uh, not usually as big as our parents are, but have been partners for me in in what I've created. And what a beautiful thing that that was one of the gifts that you got. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so you were then free, no longer under the pressure of Samburu Project and funding. Well, I mean, it took. I started to unwind from that. It was not as easy as that, Robbie. So yeah, but I, anyway, I I ended up staying at the organization until the end of February, Leap Day, twenty sixteen. Pretty cool, right? Yeah. So my that's gonna be four years this February. Uh, and what's interesting about it is that. It was a really horrible transition. Uh, you often hear about how leadership transitions are not that get ugly, and it did. It got really ugly, yeah, especially with founders, right? 
<laughs> yeah, it was ugly. I mean, I was ready to, I, I resigned, you know, I was, I, it was on my own reconnaissance. I chose to leave and, um, and then it just got super weird. Like the way that the new leadership came in and it was just weird. The whole thing was really, yeah. And like the focus was on things that it should not have been on in my opinion. And it's, and it was so stressful. So it was really pretty awful. It was for me because it was my baby. And I was like, and you know, I, I was like, how is this happening? Like, this is such a beautiful thing. Why is it going sideways like this? And that's like, you know, thank God for like hindsight. Right. Cause I was like, Oh, this is what happens. And that's after I cried a lot and felt like I was being ganged up on and like all kinds of crazy shit. But the thing that's beautiful about it is I can always tell people, I'm like, okay, I've been through all of it. So not only did I start the organization, I went through a horrible leadership transition. <laughs> I know what that's like. I've been through that and I survived it. Thank God. Um, and what did you do next? Like, how did it, how did. So this is what happened. And that was, I mean, I'm telling you, I can't, the way the transition happened was so awful. On top of like, I had already had a pretty challenging year before that with my dad dying and I had gone through a major custody situation with my father's, my my, my son's father. And so and that was like a three and a half year thing. Like I'd had, it, I was like, I was burnt out. Oh, and then Mona had died too. In 2011, Mona died. And that was right when my custody situation happened with my son's father, which was a three and a half year, you know, spiritual, mental, emotional, physical challenge, right? Um, and then my dad dying. So the, I, there was just a lot. It was like a really challenging five years. <clears throat> and um, so I made the decision when I was leaving Samburu, especially after like it just got so weird at the end. It was just so stressful. I was like, I'm, uh, I'm not going to make a decision about anything for 90 days which didn't make sense for my bank account <laughs> at all. Cause I actually had no money because I had spent all of my personal savings starting the organization 10 years before I didn't take a salary for three years. And then I had a child and I was a single parent. And so, you know, I didn't have any money in the bank. <laughs> so I don't, it wasn't like I was telling everybody this, I was just like, okay, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I know that there's no possible way that I can make a good decision for myself right now. Like I'm not in any place to make a decision for myself. Like I'm in a place where I need just to give myself time and space. And so I took 90 days. I had started doing a little bit of consulting work, like most of it not paid with for friends that were starting companies, women. And I really was enjoying that, like helping women with their businesses. Um, but I was just focusing on me. I got like, I don't know if they have this in London, but I got class pass. I think they do actually. Do you know class pass? No. It's like a, a way you can go to like all the studios and like go to their uh, classes. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. One fee. Um, so I did like class pass. I was taking, yeah, I was going all over, mostly Santa Monica, all over like doing different classes and going to yoga and, you know, taking naps during the day and meeting up with friends and spending more time with my son and that kind of thing. And like my son and I at that time went to Disneyland. And so it really took three months. But interestingly, some at some point during that three months, 
I had been thinking that I would, I was into this women's, working with women business owners, right? Entrepreneurs. And then uh, some, like, sometime, and I had thought about doing, like working with family foundations on like mission, vision, strategy kind of stuff. Because I, I, there's all these fa- family foundations that gave all this money away, but most of them didn't have any like real focus. But I wasn't sure about that. I was kind of like tossing things around. And then I got an email one day from a woman who was also a client of Mona's and she had worked at Paramount with me and I actually introduced her to Mona. And she was a bit younger than me and she had actually written a book uh, when she was like 25 about, called The Quarter Life Crisis. She will shout me nameless. But what was interesting is I'd often get her emails and get triggered. Like I'd get kind of triggered. Like I'd, I'd feel edgy. I'd be like, ugh, you know? And I got the email one day and I'm like, why am I so like triggered by her? And I was like, holy shit. It's because I want to do what she's doing. Like I want to become a coach. I want to be having these conversations. <laughs> right? I mean, jealousy and what envy or whatever. It's just an indication, right? Yeah. Of like something that you want. So it's like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Like, it, by the way, I still need to thank her for that. She moved out of town, so I haven't seen her. But I, it really, that was a pivotal moment. And I was like, oh, my lands, I want to do this work. That's the work I want to do. I want to do the work, the Mona work, the, I mean, you know, what I've learned from her. And so I started researching. I decided that I, even though I had done the work with Mona, I decided that it was important for me to, like I wanted to have a certification like that was just, I wanted to have that. Yeah. What, what, what was important about that for you? Um, and, and I guess in that question is the question when, in, when do you think it's important for coaches to have certifications and to do that kind of I thing? I just wanted it for like the framework. I think I wanted it, you know, Mona was kind of right brain loosey goosey. And I was like, well, so I had a lot of information from her. I could have just started coaching. I was like, no, I want to, I want to see how other people do it, see what this is about. So I started researching it and there's like 8,000 places you can go and get a coach. Especially in California, right? Yeah, a lot. So I was like, well, what, you know, what to do? And then I can't, I, I was looking at like three IPEC, which is where I ended up doing my training. They have that in England as well. Institute for professional excellence in coaching. And then there was like, a, what's the other one called? Coach you, and then there was one more. I forget what it's called, but anyway, it doesn't matter. It's, it's so not meaningful to me. <laughs> but I'm glad that I did it. And so the interesting thing is, without really knowing it, I only declared the 90 days on literally like the 90th day. I like called. I mean, I had already been talking to IPEC, but I called and like gave them my money and like signed up for the, a program it was starting in July, like with their modules, like their in-person meetings, but it was, uh, I was doing like an advanced study so I could do my advanced coursework beforehand, like immediately. So literally in the 90th day, I made a decision. I went, I signed up for coaching school without actually knowing that it was the 90th day until I got back on. And so I started doing the IPEC work and uh, it was like a year program, intensive, you know, a lot of work, but it gave me the balls. See, so I got balls again to like start soliciting coaching clients. I, I'm a, the first module was like the beginning of July and I almost immediately started soliciting clients. And I felt like I could do that because I was in coaching school for whatever reason. It was good. 
it was a it was a worthwhile ten thousand dollar investment. Yeah, and so then fast forward us like I, I for some reason my intuition is fast forward us to now, uh, and then let's fill in the gaps. So so we're now that's twenty sixteen. Is it still like July August twenty sixteen? Yeah. So we're like uh, so it started July twenty sixteen, and I finished up somewhere in the next spring in twenty seventeen. Yeah. Yeah, and so we're now a couple of years on from that. And how is your like work? Lifetime. Yeah, right. I can't believe. I mean, it feels so long ago. I feel like I've been coaching forever. Yeah, but in so a good way. What does it look, What does it feel like now? What does it look like? How is work and how is coaching? <sighs> it's only as good as the day where you get a new client. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thought I had a new client yesterday. We'll see. Um, it's good. You know, it's interesting. The year that we worked with Rich or whatever that was, it seemed like it was a year. It wasn't quite a year. It was about nine months or something. Yeah. So that was, uh, so we, we were on a prosperous coach salon. I think it was from like October 17 until uh, May or, or something like that. June, I think. Went to June. Yeah. It kind of got extended a bit. Yeah. So that's, that was pretty early, right? So you made the 10, you, know, we talk, you talked a little bit about the getting the signs for the, for the investment, but that's another big investment in terms of money that you'd made in yourself and your business within the first kind of two or three years. So what, how does it, well, yeah. within the first two years, really. So how, like, hold yeah, that. Which was October, 2017. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the same year that I was just finishing up IPAC. Yeah. So I, I'm really curious about that because I think that one of the things that coaches sometimes find difficult is making investments in themselves. You know, I, it's been a common theme already. I've only, this is only the sort of sixth or seventh of these that I've done. And pretty much everyone who I've asked, you know, what's on the podcast, what, what, uh, one bit of advice is most important. Pretty much everyone it within, maybe not in the first one, but in the first two or three has said, you know, hire a coach, get, learn from other people, uh, develop yourself and use that to support you. And I think for some people making that investment, even just, a I don't know, even a smaller amount of money is really hard. And something about you meant that you were up for making two five-figure investments within a, a, within the first 18 months of deciding yeah. to become a coach. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely a student in a lot in so many ways. Yeah. So I didn't think I couldn't. I was looking actually that year, and, and I know you're going to talk about it now, but for some reason we're back to talking about then. So. Here we go. In 2017, after I finished my you know coaching work, somehow I stumbled. I had been hearing about the Prosperous Coach book, and then my son had gone away for a couple of weeks with his godmother, and so I had like a little time and space for myself. And I'm like, I'm going to delve into that and actually listen to it and listen to the audio within like 24 hours. I listened to the whole book, and I was like, wow. And then I started like you know stalking Rich on the on the internet and like watching his coaching, and I was like, wow this is the closest thing in terms of the depth that I've seen since the work I did with Mona. Like he's uh-huh. so deep. And I was like, I got to have this guy as my coach. I was actually looking for, I was looking for a coach, not necessarily for my business, but personal. I didn't realize he was like a hundred thousand dollars a year for one-to-one. I got a much better deal with Mona. <laughs> <laughs> she increased her prices, by the way. Like it went from the 12 years that I worked with her. She went from a hundred dollars an hour to one fifty. <laughs> I love the different, like, uh, I love the and we, By the way, outraged. I was outraged about it. Outraged. <laughs> I was so angry about that. I was so mad that she raised her prices. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? But I love outraged. the difference and how people just, like, the weird thing is, somehow, 
there's something in the coaching industry that, that the people who charge really big fees are more well known. Like one of the other guests on the that I interviewed, uh, she, you know, she's been coaching for 18 years or something. So one of the longest coach, longest coaching people in the UK and it's done like 14,000 hours of one-to-one. And she does the kind of, she did the kind of thing that Mona did, right? She, yeah. she just loves, she just coaches people all the time. She doesn't need any gaps between sessions, none of that stuff. And yeah, she doesn't really charge that much. And it's really interesting. That different people are, she good? She goes hundred pounds an hour. So somewhere between Mona's oh two prices. Um, at least she does for some people. I think we talked about it in the thing. It's like, there's a slightly higher price for corporate stuff and there's a slightly higher price in a couple of situations, but most of the time it's a hundred pounds an hour, which is great value. And I recommend people, Katie Harvey, I recommend people check out that episode and and listen and you'll be like, Oh yeah, I can definitely afford this coach. Maybe they'll think, Yeah. but she's got, you know, carefully thought out reasons for why that's the point she's at. And you have to do what, what, resonates with you what works for you right yeah but but so you read the so book. anyway you, i was I, yeah. I read the book and then i reached out to rich i sent him an email i didn't know that he had this big you know machine behind him i thought i was just gonna get rich i was like hey told him about a bit about myself and then i got like a generic thing back and in a way i guess when i sent the email i knew that he was expensive i think actually and i but i thought it was seventy five thousand, and i was like i don't have that but i'll figure out a way to get it to work with somebody like this and um, then when I got like a generic email back and it was like, oh, there's a salon or a salon, as you all say. And I was like, oh, and it was only like, I don't remember what it was, but it was like 13 or $15,000 or something. And I was like, well, that's a whole lot less than 75,000. Suddenly I mean, it's a bargain. <laughs> it was a bargain. Yeah. But then it was like, that was not even a hard decision. Yeah. No, actually that's the decision that I asked my dad about and helped me with. So you know, anytime you're spending something over ten thousand dollars, you're like, especially we don't really have any money. I mean, at the time I had started coaching, and I was making money as a coach, right? But I was not charging very much money comparatively. So anyway, you know, the investments are, and then I had an amazing. I mean, made my money back, and the the time that I worked with Rich, I got my first, you know, ten thousand dollar client. I got my, you know, I got, I got. I, I got a bunch of clients for some good money so it's worth it right I, I you know I that's the thing that I think is you know if you're working with if you're a coach and you're working with a coach and you're not making that back something's going wrong right but yeah, if you it's a bad investment right but most of the time if you're careful with that investment it, in the long term it's bound to pay back and that yeah. certainly that was the same same for me with with thinking about joining that salon. It's like there's no way that over the next five years I'm not going to get. So for me, I was thinking in pounds. So I'm going to get eleven thousand, ten thousand pounds then because probably pound is a bit stronger. I'm not, there's no way I'm not going to make an extra ten thousand pounds after right. working with Rich and having six months of of this. Yeah. But so yeah, and and then now we're another eighteen months on from the end of that. How does your business look? Uh, you know, I've been on your website, so I know that you've got some, you're doing, you do a variety of different things and presumably there's still one-on-one work and it looks like there's some group work. So how is your practice structured now? Well, Rich actually can, I don't know if you remember this call, but Rich was the one that convinced me to do my first group, like immediately. Yeah. Do you remember that call? I, I, well, no, I was like, I want to do a group. I want to do a coaching group. And he's like, well, start it today. And I was like, what are you talking about? And it's so funny because before that, I'd actually paid for another program. 
it was a much less expensive investment with somebody who was like, you know, trying to teach you how to put together a group coaching program. And she was way too, I'm a right brainer. So I need left brainers to deal with. Like I can't, like it has to be structured because I need help with that. And it was like, I didn't do shit the whole time. I did this, you know, class. And I think that one might have lasted for six months. I did that while I had already started when I was in the middle of IPEC still. And I was like, oh God, I'm never going to get a group coaching program off the ground. Which was like, just start today. He's who's, who's like the ideal person for your thing. And I had had a client who was sort of winding out of one-to-one sessions. And I was like, Betsy. And he was like, great. Call Betsy up and see if she'll be in your group and tell her that she gets an, and I even actually let her pay her, like choose her fee. And uh, I was like, what do you, you know, what do you want to pay for it? It's me, you know, 12 weeks and, you know, 12, whatever. And so she decided what she was going to pay. And uh, she was my first member. And then I ended up getting like six people in my group. Yeah, really fast. I remember that bit. I remember being yeah. like, it was like this. oh no, Chris has just filled the group like by stepping up. I did. And so, I did. but that, I think that distinction or that difference between, that thing that people think they have to do to start a group, let's say to start a group program and what you actually have to do to start a group program. That's one of the things I definitely learned from, from Rich. It's just like, if you've got an idea, just do it right now. But I don't, but that's easier said than done in your, in this case with this group of, of six people, because I think people are interested in that. How do you create a group? So you just call Betsy and she, and she Betsy named and her she price. Like, yeah. We ha- I remember where I was sitting, I was sitting outside on my stoop in front of my building and I was like hey what do you think about this and she's like oh yeah I'd be interested in doing that and then she named a price I think she maybe she got back to me and told me I was like perfect did she name uh, <laughs> I like the name of price thing it's, I think it's a really interesting psychological yeah, experiment did she name like when you think back now was it like more than you're expecting or less or about right or she paid a little she paid less than what everybody else was paying yeah. and I wasn't a high fee I think people were paying 250 a month for the group right for how many calls so, roughly the group like, was 750 for 12 sessions yeah so it wasn't you know it wasn't what i'm charging now for groups so <laughs> you know i think the more you i don't know i think sometimes the more you charge then that it becomes a bigger consideration for people right so it's like do you want people in your group or do you want to charge your fee yeah. And how have your, with that in mind, how have your fees generally evolved over time? Well, so for the group, my, so I do groups now. It's different. I was doing a group, which maybe I'll resurrect at some point. I really liked it. It was called um, Truly Fearless Leaders. It was a women entrepreneur group and it was called the Monday morning meeting. So it was like the board meeting, the, your board meeting. Oh, that's cool. I loved it. Don't steal my idea. No, I'm just kidding. You can take it. You can have it. Um, I loved it actually. And I just, I don't know why I didn't do another one immediately. It's it can be stressful to enroll for groups because like Rich had this great idea, like you have Betsy and then like you just bring people on, but and it did work, but sometimes it's like the timing and then what time do you do it and is everybody like, there's so many factors you're trying to get people in on. It can be a little challenging. So now I do groups, I do and I'm actually enrolling for a group right now for Invisible Warfare. So basically what I do now in my groups is I teach a book called Invisible Warfare, which is a book that Mona wrote before she died. She actually wrote it in 2006. So she wrote it five years before she died. But basically her work is written in a book and it's pretty extraordinary. 
and I'm wild because I reread it every time I teach the group and I'm like, this is, it's genius. So get the book, Invisible Warfare, if you're interested in emotional processing work because it's incredible. Mm -hmm. It's really extraordinary. She self-published it. So I take people through a six-month journey uh, in that book. So we meet three times a month um, for 18 sessions. Why three times session, a month? I like having one because then it's like you always have one week off. It gives people time to sort of simmer or not. And it gives me time to simmer. And from a calendar, calendaring perspective, I do all my clients three times a month, except for a couple of clients that I have had, I've had since the beginning and my, like the beginning, the first year of my coaching. And then those clients I see, uh, I talk to once a week. And why, why not less often? I don't know. This feels good. Three times, three times a month feels good to me. Yeah. I know some coaches that do twice a month. I think sometimes you lose your focus. Like you forget and all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, I can't believe two weeks have passed. And it's like, well, where were we? And there's like a lot of catching up to do. And I kind of keeps you on top of it. Like, especially I like to work with people for six months. That's kind of my sweet spot. And like now almost always when I propose to people, even from one to one, I propose six months work. Why do you think it's like long is enough to make something happen? I think a year long coaching relationship is a long time. And so I like this idea of like renewing the relationship if you so choose. And I think that in six months you can get an idea of like either something has happened or you see where you're going, where you've really had some transformation. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I, it sounds like that's, it's evolved a little, at least a little bit over time. You know, so you said, said uh, the older clients that have been around a longer time and you see weekly, how did you, what was your experience like of try of creating, of learning that six months, three times a week is the sweet spot? How did that happen? Three times a month, a week. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Three times, times a, week a week would be extreme. I don't know any coaches who do that, actually. I don't coaches who do lots of different things. I don't know anyone who meets several times a week, I don't think. I was just talking to a friend of mine who's a therapist and he's just finishing his hours and he meets some people three times a week. Well, I mean, the traditional psychoanalyst thing, right, is you meet five times a week. It's extreme. <laughs> but, but you don't do that. But um, yeah, what's, what's been the evolution of how you work with people and, and what have you found works and doesn't work? Well, you know, I used to do this thing, right, where I would, um, even in the proposal, like I'd, I'd give them options and whatever and, kind of stopped doing that like when it's like six months you know this is what it's gonna look like and why what's the what's different about that what's what do you like about it because i want i don't want to make a commitment for longer and you don't want to and, and, and shorter is is like not enough i mean maybe if there was somebody that was like wow like you have want to do something extraordinary and it's going to take you at least a year to do it i could see where i would take that yeah job um, I mean, even I've just taken on a consulting client where I'm really doing, it'll be coaching, but it's going to be a lot of like looking at the books kind of stuff. And I made that a six month trial because I was like, you just feels really long to me. Yeah. Like you can make amazing shit happen in six months. And if it's awesome, you can renew it. What do you do? I mean, do you, do you like, what do you do going towards? What do I do? Yeah. I mean, similar. I do offer 12 months sometimes when it feels like the right thing to do. 
Uh, I had I have a similar feeling about less than six months. I just noticed I used to do four months a lot, and I, I just noticed that those people it didn't always stick as much as I wanted it to be. And I and I with a couple of them in particular that I really loved, it felt like it hadn't stuck for them, and I was sad about that. And then I real I, I also thought if I, I they only chose four months because I gave them the chance to choose it. If I'd said six, or even if I'd said twelve with those two particularly, they would have bought the 12 uh, and then their life would have been better and we would have had more fun and it would have been great. So I stopped doing less than six because of that. Uh, But you're right. The 12 is a big commitment and you got to realize that it's like, well, I I don't necessarily want to be committing to speaking to you person. I don't know yet if, if I want to speak to you, you know, three times a month or, or whatever it is that it ends up being on average for 12 months. Like, yeah. you've got to feel it and you've, and you've got to know it. But I think there's something powerful in the way, you know, we're both talking about that, which is what do you think is best for you and for the clients? And yeah. six months is a, is a great amount of time. You can do a lot in six months and mm-hmm. it's perfect for... It's perfect yeah, for I think the four months never just... Now, interestingly, I had something come up this summer where people were like wanted to do one-off sessions with me. Huh. What did you say? Well, ultimately I haven't done it, but then I, in fact, Marty, how, Marty who turned around to Mona, she was asking me about that. And she's like, why would you do that? Like just to serve people when they want to have that, you know, and I'm like, I don't know. And so I've been kind of toying with that idea. Like, should I start offering that to some people who want just to have a session? Yeah. It's interesting, and, isn't it? Because I think you can have something extraordinary happen in one conversation. Are these people who you've worked with before or you know well, or they're people who are just coming out? Or I've done a lot of create with that never turned out to be clients. Yeah. 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 You know, if you could say you charge 500 bucks for a one-off session, you know, you do a few of those a month. Yeah. What what I've found with that stuff is I usually name a fee, which I'm like, yeah, definitely. This would be really exciting and worth it. And it would, all that kind of thing and people usually at that point say oh no thanks they haven't quite done the sums that make i don't know that make that make sense but i also sometimes just give you know give people the conversations if it's just really is just one conversation it's somebody i'd like to do that with well and then what i was finding is they were sending me flowers and i love flowers but really what i want is money (laughs) (laughs) do you know what i mean i'm like i i do love flowers and i so was grateful for that, but I'm like, my truth was, I would have rather had 500 bucks. Send me some money. Send me you know what money. I mean? I mean, I need to make money to support my lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so keep traveling around the world. And so, Chris, <laughs> well, but that's a great point, right? We need to make money. We absolutely do. And and I guess what I'm curious about is either at the start or now. How does your business tick over? Where do the people come from? You know, it's been an interesting year for me because actually this year was down from last year. And so... Uh, uh, Massively down or just uh, like... You know, I turned my focus because I started doing the Invisible Warfare work in December of last year. So I think it was putting a lot of energy into uh, filling groups. You make a lot less, less money doing groups, but it takes as much energy to get each person, in my experience. It's not any easier to get somebody for 2500 for a group than for 7500 for a one-to-one. It's the same amount of energy. Right. Now, 
The question is, would that person that did the group not do a one-to-one engagement for $7,500? We don't know. Or maybe sometimes I offer the group because they they don't want to pay the one-to-one, right? Right. Like, it's kind of like that, well, you could do this then, like, and save yourself 65% of the money or whatever. So, um, I mean, I think it's interesting. So, so many of my clients were, I mean, they were all people that I knew or like word of mouth. Yeah. People that I knew who they knew. I have to think now. It was all refer- it was all people that I knew. And it was like I coach people that I know too. Because I know a lot of people. And so and they want me to coach them. And as people don't do that, like they wouldn't coach a friend, so to speak. I coach my friends that want coaching. Uh, as paying clients? Yeah. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I mean, if I have a service to provide for them and they want me, why would I not? I I know some people don't do that. I do it. But what's been your experience of it? Of working with friends? Great. Yeah. It can be wonderful, can't it? Like I, I'm not sure yeah. that I've had I haven't had many paying clients that over for a while that were people that I genuinely felt like friends. But when I did, it was great. And I've done one off conversations here and there. And it's, it's wonderful. You drop into a new place in the relationship with them, the friendship. Also, the coaching can go to really interesting places because of yeah. the existing relationship. So, yeah. So I still have, I mean, some of my oldest clients are people that were like my, are my friends that I've known for 30 years or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Still, they're still my client. They still want to work with me. They still want to do a call once a week or whatever. So, anyway, um, I have recently started, in fact, I don't know if it's going to happen or not, but I thought that I had converted a client yesterday who was a client that I had uh, found on, uh, gotten on LinkedIn. Huh. I know that you do a lot of writing on LinkedIn. Do you do LinkedIn ProFinder? Uh, no, I just write, I just use it as a, a writing platform, really, and a, and a uh, what you call it, like a business card holder. I, I, don't, I haven't used it for anything else. Well, because you have so much on LinkedIn, it might be an interesting thing to pursue if you're looking for clients. Uh, because I've gotten a couple of clients from LinkedIn. I mean, essentially it pays for the service because I think it's $79 a month. And what does it do? You get leads. Right. So people who are looking for coaches, right? They look for, they're asking for proposals and you send proposals. And, you know, it's a lot of, I just, I'm doing a cut and paste pretty much for the most part, a little bit like modifying it. Um, in fact, I have a, another call this afternoon, but I've had a number of this last couple of weeks, I've had a few calls and one was a yes yesterday. Now I got a, you know, this is a weird coachy thing, right? At the middle, of, I woke up this morning. She was, and I was like, I want you to think about it. We'll get back. And she's like, no, I know I want to do this. Like, I know I want to do it. I'm like, Okay. So I said, why don't you, you know, talk to your husband and whatever. And then, of course, she came back, had an email or message this morning and said, uh, her husband wants to quit his job. And so now it's going to change the financial conversation. So we'll see what happens. But if that one happened, I will, like LinkedIn will be like a financial windfall for me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a like, you know, it's a good way to think, isn't it? You know, how long you can run that at $79 a month if one one-on-one client or a group client is two and a half 
thousand dollars, right? Forever. Exactly. Forever. You only need to get one, and it pays for forever. the next five years. If you years, get a couple years, a year, you know, it's a, forever. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think I've worked it out where I've figured out because at first I think my proposals weren't good. Yeah. I didn't realize what I had to say, and then I wrote actually a proposal for another client for this uh, this company that I'm working with, and I was like, oh, I like that proposal. I'm going to use that on my LinkedIn proposal. Like I'm going to use like a similar structure. And it's really worked because a lot of people have been saying, yeah, I want to have a conversation with you. Wow. How interesting. So like online advertising anyway, basically so works. Material, like on LinkedIn, you'd actually probably be more interesting because there's more to find out about you in that space. Like, I don't have anything on LinkedIn. I like it. So that might be, you know, because you think about like where you, like this company that I'm working for, I was just meeting with a bookkeeper last week and they're spending all this, they're selling a product. And you know, they're spending all this money on Facebook. And I was like, what are they doing on Facebook? And where is that money? Like, what's the outcome? You know, we have to be able to tell that story when we look at the books, so to speak. Not that I really have complicated books, but if I'm investing any money, I have to look to see the flow of the money, like what's coming back to me based on that investment, right? And if I'm not getting anything back based on that investment, then I have to stop investing. Right. Money. And I think coaches, and whether that's time or money, right? So people spend a ton of time like on Instagram or whatever. They're trying to find people that way or Facebook and Facebook lives. And they're trying to find people that way. Like I found a client this year. To, I might've gotten other clients, but I got a client directly because she saw a Facebook live and she direct messaged me and she was like, I have to work with you. Oh, amazing. And I guess maybe that's a nice place to go now. This kind of thing of this whole place of... I, and you, I'm sure it does happen. Of what would what? Well, how do you suggest that coaches who are, want to grow a business and and create clients go about that? If people ask it, or or what advice would you give? I'm still trying to figure it out, Raleigh. Yeah, I think it's always changing. I think you have to do a, a lot of different things. I think you have to be out in the world connecting with people. period. Like, because you never know where your clients are coming from and you have to be willing to speak into the world, what you're doing on some level. Like you can't be quiet and expect people to come to you for their, your services. So somehow you have to let people know what you're doing, but then at the same time, you have to really just connect for connection's sake. Like you cannot connect with a, a an agenda. Cause every time I try to connect with an agenda, it fucks me up. Like, just don't do that. But sometimes I, when I'm feeling a little desperate, like, oh, I really did a client, my connections start becoming a little unwieldy. <laughs> yeah. but you so, know what I'm talking about? Like, make that, make that distinction more real for people about. So if you're connecting just for connecting, you specifically, what are you doing? What's an example? Having deep conversations with people, like asking them about their lives, asking them curious questions. Just wherever you go. Yeah. Yeah. In yeah, just that, That's right. and then also like you know, spending time every week really just saying, "Hey, let's have coffee, let's have lunch," yeah, and then just showing up as a powerful human, and people are like, "I want what she's got." Right. So this, that's a really important thing, right? Show up as yourself. Show up as yourself. Like I've been getting a lot of like, I like what you have. Yeah, and is that so? Because because then the interesting thing I think for people, you know, if you read the Prosperous Coach or whatever, or someone hears you saying, you know, just connect. Well, only connect is that first bit. 
then the interesting bit is how does that then become? Is it obvious or is it entirely unobvious? Are there any patterns about how that then becomes someone who's a client? It's every, every, every instance is different. Yeah. And there, there, I, at least since I've, I don't know. I mean, I have some people like to say that like, oh, they figured it out. Or I remember I talked, was talking to somebody recently and they were like, I've never had a no ultimately when I got to this place. And I'm like, that's great. I don't, I almost don't believe it. And if it, if it, that's true, like good for you. But I don't know. Like, I just don't know. I have a a same, like that, that good for you tone of voice that you had there. I have that same feeling. Sometimes it's like, Okay, it feels like if that's true, something must be wrong here. And I don't know what it is, but like, what, you can't <laughs> Am be I right. missing something? Yeah. But I don't, like, I get so many fucking no's, Robbie. You have no <laughs> idea. Like, I am, in that fact, I was processing all morning, doing my writing, like, fuck. Yeah, but actually, let's, let's, let's good. And I'm like, getting the no's. And I'm like, fuck. It doesn't like, feel I'm good, fucking yeah. not good. That's why in my writing today, I'll share. My Scrabble, my Scribble Scrabble. So wait, Kristen, just before you share it, what, what's your writing practice in a time like this? So you've got the nose, you're feeling like, fuck, what do I do? Ah. What, what do you write? Do you just write or like, because I think a lot of people, like not just coaches, deal try and deal with this kind of thing. Yeah. And it's it's really hard. Well, I do, I, I practice and I was going to say preach. <laughs> I practice, preach, and teach emotional processing. Right. So that's the so place where you take emotional processing work. Uh, and I do sort of a hybrid of, um, I do a hybrid of the artist's way, Julia Cameron's work, which is at the morning pages. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Yeah. And then I, but in my morning pages, it's like, fuck you. Or like, I'm scared because I'm sad because I'm angry because I'm frustrated because blah, 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 blah. This, you know, this is like, it makes me feel, it reminds me of it creates, I do all my writing prompts. I do my writing, my processing in my morning pages. Yeah. And then I might start crying or I might have to take a bat and a pillow out and start hitting it. Today I didn't do that, but I cried because then somehow I got sidetracked and then went to the picture on Facebook of my dad and then I, yeah. I cried. I had a really good cry this morning. So the goal is tears, usually, because what sits beneath our anger is our sadness. Or what sits below our frustration is our sadness. And when we allow ourselves to have that emotional experience of crying, then like all of a sudden we become lighter and more intuitive and more connected to the planet, ourselves, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I wrote... And then, like, what I came up with was my big thing was this, like, what is it? So what I was doing my writing, what come, came up was, like, this feels like rejection. Like, I kind of got two rejection, potential rejection things this morning. But that could fucking trigger me where it could take me down a really dark path. Like, really dark. So I knew I had to go after rejection. I still do. I feel like I can... I need to take the bat and the pillow out today and I need to hit it and fucking go after rejection because I have such a history of rejection and a story about rejection that like, like I had a four year, like maybe eight, maybe 12. I don't know. Like run of rejection that was so intense as a young person that like, I just, everything I tried to do, I like I failed at everything. And so 
I still like, I have to keep going back there because that teenage girl is like, I've done so much work on her and she's still fucking upset about it. And so suddenly I'm fucking 14 when I get a potential email that's like, this might not work out. And so how do I fuck things up if I don't process it? Because the rejection has so much energy around it for me. Mm. Am I helping you on this? <laughs> it's great. It's really great. And I think lots so of people- You have to process in, in it. Life. You got to process it. Tell them to call me. I'll tell you how to process yeah. it. I'm always <laughs> processing it. It's not like, oh yeah, it never happens to me. Okay. No, I get fucking rejected all the time. My challenge is, is like, what is my relationship with rejection? How am I hand, what am I going to do about it? Yeah. And yeah, I think look, loads of people will, will recognize loads of parts of that. And it's a, it's a great story. And, and maybe it's a nice place, actually. I know there's, you know, other things that you need to be doing today. So maybe that's a nice place for us to start to draw this conversation to a close. It just feels like such a truth. Before we do, I'm just curious. You, you mentioned a couple of things that you're working on at the moment. What's coming up for you? How do you think about the next phase of your business and your work? Wow, there's just so many pieces of it. But I want to continue this the work that I'm doing around Invisible Warfare, the book, the emotional processing work, because I think that it's really at the foundation. It's the root of everything. Like, we can talk about your business. We can talk about your love life. We can talk about your social life. We can, whatever, you know, your hobbies or whatever it is that you're into doing. But if you're fucked up on the emotional front, and you have to learn how to do the processing work. So I feel like it's part of my job on this planet is to teach people how to process emotions because I feel like it's what everybody needs, but no one's really talking about. Yeah. So it's that it's continuing. I'm, I'm going to start another group in December. I'm actually doing a part two of a group, two groups that ended already. And they, there's a group of people that want to do like a continue the work. That's really awesome. cool. And a sign that you're doing really important work with them. Yeah. And then, um, I've had a client who's gone through Invisible Warfare that wants to develop an app with me that's around the emotional processing work. Oh, wow. And that's really exciting. That's kind of a, that's cool. the newest thing. And I'm, I don't even know what that's going to look like yet. But I had declared a couple of weeks ago that I was going to, that I wanted to do a course around Invisible Warfare. Probably not call that something else, like more of what Kristen's take on Invisible Warfare is. Um, I mean, I really see Invisible Warfare as part of my body of work that, I work from, like from that perspective, somewhat like uh, I, and my inspiration is like Marianne Williamson and the work she did around A Course of Miracles. This is kind of like what I see that it's my Course of Miracles because mm. it's really my, my personal path, my personal foundation. It's the work that I do every day. So that, and then there's also a part of me that is working towards getting into some more corporate work. Uh, where I can bring this the emotional intelligence into companies. Like, I think every company, instead of having a sleeping room, should have an anger room. Right. That's really cool, Kristen. But all of those things are exciting. <laughs> and is there anything else before we draw the conversation to a close that you want to share with people who might be listening or anything that we haven't hit that feels important? Well, I was kind of saying this before, and I don't know why it's it's in the top of my mind just right now today. I was telling this to somebody yesterday. It's like, those who don't quit win. Yeah. Those who don't quit win. 
beautiful way to finish. Kristen, it's been like such a pleasure to spend time with you again after what feels like a long time. And really exciting to hear about what you've got coming up and, and what you've been up to. And thanks for sharing thanks, so Bobby. much. Thank you. I'm just, this was fun. It's always fun for me to yeah. connect with you and share a little bit of my journey. Yeah, I think people are going to love love hearing it. So thanks very much and see you again. Thank you.